Welcome everyone to episode 11 of Tales from the Bridge, TFTB. My name is Tristan. Hi, I'm Marty. Hey, this is Kevin. And I'm Sam. And in this episode, we're talking about Andy Weir's Project Hail Mary. Fantastic book, we all really liked it. Stick around for some trivia at the end, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Court of Owls graphic novel series. So, let's just get right to it. Let's make our way over to the bridge. Shall we start out with science fiction science fact? I think so. Okay. The segment where we talk about things that are happening in the news, kind of sciencey, kind of science fictiony, but real world. Um, thing that seems to be all the rage these days is having your own spaceship and going up into space. Um, what do you guys think of that? Well, I will take issue right away. Uh, you know, this isn't really about just like it can be colored very often as being pointless right but no this is the development of like a backbone of technology that's actually really crucial for the growth of our civilization and also economy right like these guys have managed to pull off the development of cool ass technology that is really useful and will probably give rise to new industries um just like carnegie and you know the billionaires of 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 100 or 200 years ago right they it took billionaires to build a railroad across the country because the the government sort of couldn't do it it was private enterprise needed to to develop these new economies and new technologies and and that's exactly what's happening now and i think that's great there you yeah. go that's i agree 100 percent. i i really have a problem with that narrative of oh they should be spending their money on something more important um i agree that there are other things that are also very important and there are governments and there are other billionaires who are spending money you know aka um bill and melinda gates and uh, warren buffett and many people are doing philanthropic donations um however these are this is about commoditizing getting to space this is about making it cheap um i mean and i say that relatively like air quotes around cheap um this is about changing the way that we interact with low earth orbit um and in the case of I guess so far Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic not even in orbit. Uh, but yeah, I 100% agree. This is, this is, I really have a difficult time with people saying we need to do everything else before we do space travel, you know, or these are the same people who whinge about NASA's minuscule budget that we've talked about in previous shows. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, and, and sorry, Sam, go ahead. No, I, I like. I agree. I, I like. I, I do think it creates. It's. I mean, it's not. It's not broad. It doesn't create broad access right away to space. But it, these are the steps that you have to take to get any sort of normalcy to space travel. Is rich people get to do it first, and yeah, it's like it's not pretty. Like it does feel like, you know, yeah, like who's you know, like it does feel like a like a pissing contest, and and uh, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of like ugliness to it in a way, but this is kind of how it works, right? Like where else does, does um, how else does sort of broader access to space and nor the normalization of space travel happen, but through, you know, a sort of elite group and then it sort of broadens out, you know, like, you know, it, was, it wasn't that long ago that you had to be an elite fighter pilot um, and, and a scientist with three PhDs um, in order to get up space. Now you can just make a lot of money. You know? and, and so, yeah. There's or you know, win a lottery ticket for one of the yeah exactly right so you know I, like yeah it's it's it, it's 
it's a little cringy, but at the same time, it does feel like uh, a necessary uh, step uh, to to any sort of grander or more broader scope of, of space exploration. I think it's kind of amazing that these guys have coordinated quite, uh, I don't know, they've coordinated the carving up of like very different uses and non-overlapping technologies, right? Like the space plane is just a completely different beast than what Elon Musk is making. We're like, you know, really big rockets, high orbit, uh, you know, trans lunar and, and, and interplanetary. Uh, whereas, you know, like the space plane is very much, I think, like a slam dunk economically. I think that's a way better business model than, you know, trying to put a hotel in space. And, and I know they're trying to do that too, but but like a space plane is like the con what the Concord should have been, right? The Concord failed. There are a lot of rich people. There are a lot of just wealthy people and upper middle class people that are willing to pay to get to Tokyo or somewhere really far away much faster, right? That is worth money. If you can get there in an hour or two hours instead of 12, like that's a slam dunk. Why wouldn't you develop that? And I think that's what Branson's, I mean, he owns a, uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> an airline company, uh, and so I think it makes sense what he's doing. Right, he's making a low Earth orbital vehicle that'll just be able to get you from LA to you know China or or Europe or you know anywhere a lot faster and good for him. Um, and whereas, and mm-hmm. sorry, and 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 Virgin is a showy brand, right? They mm-hmm. uh, part of what they do with all of their different brands, whether they're mobile phones or, you know, music or, or, or airlines is they try to be a little more flashy and this is ultimate flashiness, yeah. right? Yeah. It, if you looked underneath the, the, the little space plane thing, the, the Virgin emblem was yeah. right yeah. there front dead center and trying to live stream it with Richard Branson doing his, his little chit chat while he was in zero gravity. Um, yeah. All that was about showmanship. Totally, totally. And and it was, you know, an interesting thing I didn't expect from this is when I was watching some of it, I guess at least later, uh, age matters too, right? He's the oldest of these billionaires by a lot. This is an old guy who like went up to space on his incredibly reliable new space plane. And that's the point he was trying to make. And I kind of love it. I, I love that he was first. I, I love that like this, you know, he's fit and awesome and he gets to do what he wants and he owns this he owns the whole corporation i didn't know this until i started having conversations with people about this right that there's a larger situation at play here a ceo of a giant company can't just like decide to go on an airplane you know space so i guess that's why bezos had to step down as as ceo i think that's true right Uh, yeah because like you know he this is a huge corporation there they they can't uh there's no insurance company that's gonna like cover this trip right yeah. uh and and elon musk is incredibly involved in the direct workings i think you know much more so than the other guys uh of of his company so you know he's a working ceo he doesn't have time to be an astronaut that's a different career so he hasn't done it but i love that richard branson was just like i own the whole thing i don't have a board telling me what i can and can't do and guess what i'm going to space see you guys later like that's awesome <laughs> that nobody else could do that and it's pretty pretty classic um like Branson marketing, guerrilla marketing or whatever they call it, right? <laughs> like he's he's known for that, those sort of stunts. So it's not, I mean, that, yeah, in a way it's always predictable. And let's face it, like no one wants to get on Elon Musk's rockets right now. <laughs> you know, they just keep blowing up. I guess we have so, seen a few. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really a two-way race until we see and like 
some non-explosive landings on uh, on Elon's part there. Well, he, you know, but but when he put people on there, they worked just fine. He's had astronauts already go up. Like Elon Musk is oh, yeah? way ahead of these guys, and and I think that's an interesting part of this conversation too. If he wanted to have gone on one of his uh, launches, like he could have gotten suborbital with his stuff anytime before these guys. He's way ahead. But I think it, it again speaks to how he's really the king of this thing. He's he, he he knows that other people it's like, oh that's not a real first other being the first billionaire in space, who cares? There's lots of people who've been in suborbit and orbit and they've even been to the moon. Mm-hmm. Like he's waiting for the real first and he's gonna go to Mars. And and there's no way, you know, Bezos or Branson is gonna is gonna be able to nip at his heels uh, with, with that goal. So, so, so explain to me what the explosion bits are, because like it seems like every week or so there's another rocket attempting a a, a landing and then it goes out. Right. Is this a, a different generation of rocket? Is this uh, uh, like it's just a, a booster recovery thing that's going wrong? Like I'm not clear on that. Well, they've been they've been largely blowing up on landing, and that's sort of the the new Keystone technology that he's developed. That's like super different than anybody else, and and so far nobody's been like sitting in a rocket. I don't think that is landing, no. right? Uh, yeah, the the rockets have put people in space, and they've put astronauts into uh, onto the mirror, uh, onto the space station, and all that stuff is working fine. But that's just what it takes to develop rockets, I think, right? Like, it's just sort of, ball- he's the guy that has the money and the power and the engineering and, and all this to be, like, doing rocket development as it needs to be done, which is just, like, you got to build a lot of rockets, and you got to launch them all, and you got to, like, figure out what's going wrong, and they expect, you know, 90% or I don't know how I'm sure it's no surprise the number that have blown up it's not like anybody's like oh no it blew up it's like okay we had four reasons it could have blown up this time and uh, let's figure out which one it is that's great right and they keep learning and they're getting better and I think that's why they've had such fast technology development like they're just way ahead they're just they, doing shit. Nobody they've been uh, so they SpaceX has lost their prototypes for the Starship, which is their 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 craft that they want to be able to land on a different planet. So their Falcon Nines and their Falcon Heavies have not been blowing up. Those ones, those are the ones that they're actually using for to carry customer payload into space. Uh, the only time they've had any mishaps has been when they've been trying to recover the 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 boosters and when they land, and some of those blow up. But that's after the payload has gotten up into space. The ones that you see lately over the last several uh, um, you know, months have been Starship, and those ones, those those even haven't gone up into orbit. They just go up into kind of the stratosphere, and then they come back down. They glide down, and they try to reorient themselves and land properly. And they did finally do a successful landing um, uh, a couple weeks ago. So that was the first successful landing, which is amazing because it is a huge rocket to be able to land. Um, but question with this, uh, so he, Richard Branson went up to 80 kilometers, um, which only 4% of those that know about space, apparently, according to Blue Origin, which we might not believe, um, actually consider to be the, the level of when you're in space. So oh. most organizations, again, according to Blue Origin think it's a hundred kilometers, and uh, so they didn't get that high. They got up to eighty kilometers. Ah. So they are in the astronaut book, but they are asterisks besides their names that said that they went up to eighty kilometers and not a hundred. Oh, so interesting. are they really astronauts? No. <laughs> yes. Richard. Hey man, they were bouncing a lot around, you know, in zero gravity. I mean that. I think to the common man, that's all, all that counts. You got the video. Yeah, you're, you're, you're weightless. They're in zero ah, G. Good enough for me, man. Yeah. 
course, I could do zero G at a, a few hundred meters and, you know, a Boeing 747 doing an arc. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But and still. that's basically what they're doing, right? I yeah. get that, right? And I guess 100, 100 kilometers is probably just more safely into, like, permanent orbit, right? Like, if you can get to 100, presumably that's what you need to be it's able to It's totally stay. arbitrary. Totally arbitrary. I guess, yeah. yeah, the faster you go, the lower your orbit. I'm in the middle of thinking that it's it's just these rich people doing it because we're definitely or they are definitely privatizing space whether it's good or not i don't i i don't know i don't know i don't i don't know if uh it's if people average people have a say in that or not or if it's something that the government should come up and say hey let's do it together but they kind of are doing it together like spacex works very closely with nasa um so I mean, it, it's not he gets, and he also gets a lot of subsidies from their government to do the things he's doing. Uh, I don't know, I, I but I do think the future is in space, and it doesn't sound out of the realm of reality that uh, people will be living on Mars. And I wouldn't doubt if Elon sends himself to Mars first, and he's one of the if not one of the first person to step onto Mars, it just seems like that's just going to happen. It's a matter of time before we do something with the moon and then Mars. Um, and then obviously asteroids, which I think uh, Blue Origin wants to do more with, with asteroids, right? Oh, interesting. Okay. So I was trying to figure out, like, this is what I was saying, right? That, that, that it's not a bag of cash in space. These are very different and uh, possibly lucrative in the future industries with different technologies, right? So getting from one place on Earth to another place uh, really fast will become Virgin Galactic specialty. Uh, getting to other planets and that kind of thing will become uh, SpaceX specialty. And now you mentioned it, right, that, uh, that being able to go up and catch objects in space, right, and land on them, that, that is, right, the, the kind of technology probably that Blue Origin is. Because they're, they're very different, right? They have a... Uh, rocket uh, with a with a capsule on top, and so it's a launch vehicle that just launches this capsule up into space. And they have nice windows, apparently. Uh, they can see you know bigger vistas than than any other one. And uh, the the capsule just gets popped off, and you get a nice view of space. And then you come down on parachutes, which is not as smooth a ride as Richard Branson got today, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so you know that's a whole different thing. And I've been trying to wonder why. What is it about? about uh, Blue Origin's specialty. And, and I guess you're right, right? It's all about sort of just like getting up to a point and, and attaching onto it maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Blue Origin, they there is a vertical takeoff and landing rocket, more much more traditional. Um, mm -hmm. They use hydrogen, oxygen. So, you know, part of their shtick is that they are um, more environmentally friendly so they're not they're not actually burning any hydrocarbons, but SpaceX is and so oh. is Virgin Galactic. Um, and, uh, and because they have a vertical takeoff and landing, they could in theory get places faster. So they should be able to leave if they're going to take off from New York and they want to land in Tokyo. Um, they don't have that, that conventional flying period where, uh, you know, they, they have to get up into the air. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a more simple system. Uh, so should we get into the Batman and the Court of Owls series that we started? Well, it was certainly the best Batman I've ever read. I think that was clear to me easily. Um, I mean, it's like Red Sun for Superman. It, it really 
does Batman well, it does him proud, I think it's a great story, it's interesting from an adult level. Um, yeah, it was a great Batman story, much more interesting than any other one I've read. And it really describes the underlayer of Gotham in a completely different way. Uh, it changed, uh, it, well, it added to the Wayne legacy a little more. And just knowing that there's stuff going on and has there have been things going on underneath I literally the the surface of Gotham and then also in the abandoned uh buildings yeah uh that have been there for a hundred years uh that was very cool and uh, not even in abandoned buildings right in active buildings but like between floors between floors secret. and I thought that was lovely like that, that's why the owl metaphor was so perfect Lee executed, I guess, in this case, owls eat bats. So it's about time, right, that the, the, the bat predator was uh, let loose. And and they did such a great job of describing these, I guess, aviaries, owlaries, these in-between spaces in, you know, buildings right under their feet, under their nose, where, where the enemy was nesting, right? I thought, that was beautiful. That was, was probably a, was, my favorite part. It was the 13th floor, wasn't it? The 13th yeah, I think floor so. The something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. It's a good use of that, of that weird idiosyncrasy of our society where there weren't 13th floors on a lot of buildings, mm-hmm. you know, suggesting that in Gotham that there were, in fact, 13th floors and they mm-hmm. used them for this deep conspiracy of, of uh, um, you know, these owl people, which was yeah, really, really neat. very dark. I mean, um, Batman is dark, of course. What I thought was really noteworthy, apart from the Gotham and building on the character of Gotham, which I had never really um, just even considered was Gotham as a character, um, but was uh, was Batman and the absurd grit and resilience, right? After being beaten up and starved and uh, not being able to drink for days and, and fed psychotropics, yeah, right, like. It's, it's still being able to be this uber fighter despite all of those hardships was, was uh, you know, obviously over the top, but comics are meant to be over the top. So, I, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was really good. And then it amped it up, right? Like they made this great super villain and then, and then in the second one, you're like, oh, bump it up and they're like times, times a hundred. Uh, and, and I'm really, I haven't read the next one, I guess. I don't know if you have, but I haven't. Um, Tristan, so this is the, you told me there's a, a, a volume, Owls, uh, that recaps so, all the other things, that the follows upon those first two volumes of, of uh, Batman. So, uh, yeah, there's the, the Court of Owls, and then the second is the City of Owls, and then, right. and then the uh, Scott Snyder series continues on, and the third one is uh, Death of the Family. And right. um, the story takes off like at the end of the second. Wait, but book. Death of the Family is 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 the third volume of the Batman series, and it sort of veers away from the Owl plot. But there's a different graphic novel, right, that's published uh, to accompany the Owl plot, which tells right. you what all the other characters were doing during that night. Well, that's the thing yeah. is they're when they're all released separately and monthly. You've got Nightwing. Uh, they incorporated right. the story of the night of owls into so many different characters. I can't list them all because I don't know them all that well, but um, all of these uh, different series had, uh, they would have come together uh, to follow the, a similar plot line. So there, there is a copy. I think you can get some sort of uh, complete copy 
uh, and that's hardcover. It's probably 100, 150 bucks, but it has everything from all the different storylines, all the different characters who wrote, uh, where the writers uh, incorporated the owl story into it because you do meet uh, a few different characters or Batman kind of runs into a few characters that night. Uh, but you can tell that he meets them for a moment and then they have their own story somewhere else. So there is a collection you can get to find out mm-hmm. all the crazy stuff that happened that night. Kind of like uh, the Civil War. Marvel did that with Civil War where all of the different uh, writers just incorporated the plot of Civil War in the background or the forefront of their story. So even Punisher, there's a story for Punisher during Civil War. He didn't join the crew, but he had stuff going on at the same time. So it's just the Marvel and DC deciding we're going to have one big event and everyone can kind of just know that that's happening and either write it, write it into your story a little bit or a lot. And Catwoman and Batwoman, uh, yeah, like he's got a lot of uh, apprentices involved, I think, in this by this point. It's interesting to see. So the book that we read this uh, this month was Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. Um, brand new book from Andy Weir. For those who aren't familiar with him, he's the author who wrote the book The Martian, which was later turned into a major Hollywood blockbuster. Um, and for those who liked The Martian, uh, Project Hail Mary was very much along the same lines as I mentioned in our last show. Uh, so... I had recommended that we read it last month, and and we all read it. Uh, and for those who don't know, it is it's a story about uh, an individual who is in desperate situation out in space, um, and uh, and it's it's the Martian only brought to another level. And there's there's very complex levels of intrigue here. Not only is it about a human, uh, but it's also about um, an alien and uh, and how the humanity of our main character interacts with that alien and uh, and it's it's a very endearing story um, and so yeah I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys what you guys thought of it. I well, I'd love to jump right in and I'm just gonna say ten out of ten, baby. Yeah, I love this book. This was great, Tristan. Uh, not ten out of ten. I also loved it. It was fantastic. Um, <laughs> I'd give it a, a an eight, I guess, if I if I had to rate it. Oh, but wow. and I think an eight's pretty good. Like that's an excellent book. Eight it was is good, but eight is just that. Something I find interesting about this book is it is done. It's so enjoyable. It's it's almost like uh, it's it's almost written to be a movie too. Like he he just nails every scene in a way that feels like it could be a great movie. Uh, I have not read The Martian, but I imagine the flow was similar um, because it just uh, lends itself to, 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 the, to the screen so well. Um, the characters were great. The main character, Grace, was amazing. I loved him the whole way through. And then Rocky, the alien, was so lovable as well. He was fantastic. And I really liked the ending. Um, maybe an 8.5 then we'll say. Uh, but it, it's really, <laughs> really good. Uh, the thing is, it's not, uh, and this is something that we talked to David Zendel about a while back, where the, these new books, a lot of new 
top selling science fiction books. They're just great thrillers and uh, they're exciting stories. And this was definitely an exciting story. It, uh, I was interested the whole way through and then even loved the ending and it resolved itself really well. Uh, I learned a lot of science that I didn't really know about. You put things in the layman's terms so that I could understand, which was pretty cool. Um, but uh, yeah, I have no complaints about it. It might sound like I do. I don't have any complaints about it. It's just uh, I, I'm noticing a difference between, and maybe this is because of being into some hard sci-fi lately, where it, I would say that um, Project Hail Mary is, it's, he spoon feeds you that story so easily. It just falls into your brain without you having to think much about it. And uh, I think I, I want my brain to be a little more challenged. At the same time, I read for entertainment and it was a, a hugely entertaining book uh, with great characters and a great story. And I love how it unfold, the story unfolded itself uh, with his memory coming back to him slowly. And uh, there was a couple Easter eggs in there that I liked too. I wonder if you guys got those, but uh, I'll, hand, I'll hand it off over to, to Sam there. What do you, wh how, how much fun did you have on this book? I, I really liked this book. Um, I thought it was a, a clinic in how to connect a really strong story with uh, hard science and um, uh, it was entertaining. And like you said, the science just sort of falls in your brain. And I kind of wanted that in this because there's enough leaps to take in, in, in this story that the science really kind of had to be concrete. And so for me, there was a really nice balance there. I really, uh, I really had fun uh, reading this and I loved how, the alien was handled that that the aliens were, were you know encountering dealing with the same problem that that humans were without giving too much away and naturally the people the type of aliens that you would meet on such a, a, a sort of science driven mission would also be you know sharing a similar mission and i just and and the uh, the sort of chemical makeup of the alien, the planet they're from, how that how that was how that alien was treated, and how the alien race was treated, and how you know like their planet and and the sort of biology and communication and having to go through all of those pieces. Love that that sort of first contact. How do you communicate this sort of you know that his sort of uh, uh, Ryland Grace is the um, protagonist, and his, you know, he kind of, uh, you know, kind of instinctively waves, and you know that sets off something. You know, is that there's a robotic wave back, and it, you know, and it's these sort of assumptions are both. You, you get a sense of both sides of this first contact experience, struggling to figure out how to communicate and looking for for bridges and similarities. And, um, and, uh, so yeah, like I, I'm all in on this book. I, I'm afraid we don't have, we're not going to have a big argument or debate or <laughs> on this one. This is fantastic. One of my favorite books of, uh, of the year for sure. Awesome. 
I have to echo a lot of what Sam said specifically about like the, I thought this was an amazing treatment of exobiology, right? Like of, of the alien, the physiology, the evolution, the environment that come from a different planet, different pressure, different size, different chemistry, uh, you know, and it was just so simply done. Like it, he's so charming and so easy to receive his narrative, right? It just flows into your brain. And uh, uh, I loved how, how, how he made these, friends right the alien friends on a common mission uh it was a beautiful story i don't think i think that's kind of a rare one when i think of it right like you often see oh first contact you know or they don't know anything about each other everybody's lost they're on a opposite uh, sides of an issue it's really rare you get a story where like two the first contact moment is like oh my god we're on the same mission how do we help each other to to save our peoples uh and and i love the larger arch of this story and and while i agree with tristan that like maybe it wasn't poetic or it wasn't like visionary in terms of you know like what i love about david zindel let's say uh it was a it was a it was a super well crafted narrative and it, and it was so it was hard sci-fi right the beauty of it was it was a story where almost everything in there was like backed up by some pretty good learning moments about real science and what's possible and I think he did a great job of all of that. And not only that, he did a great job of like, he he invented just, astrophage is amazing, astrophage, right? It's like a whole world unto itself. It, it creates a world uh, into the future, uh, energy plentiful, you know, microbes that evolve in space on suns and other planets. Like, wow, yeah, of course. I was shocked that I was surprised when I was like, oh, I've never, I've never thought about Really, I mean, we've we've thought about all these things, but this was a new story for me, and and the best ones are the ones that, in retrospect, are sort of like so obvious because of their power, like the power of the world that this uh, this uh, microbial space-born life form uh, inspires in the story is super interesting. I love it. And, and he didn't. The nice thing about Andy Weir, at least when he did The Martian, not so much Artemis, but in in The Martian, is he invented nothing. Really, it was all based on current science. The only things that he really invented in this one was astrophage as this uber energy dense, um, you know, um, alien molecule that's causing grief, but it's also causing all sorts of neat opportunities for energy storage. Um, but the other one was the materials used on um, Rocky's ship, you know, that mm -hmm. that's very, very xenonite xenonite that's right um and so if you assume xenonite and you assume astrophage and those are the only deviations from our known universe what can you do with it mm -hmm. and and that's how he took this story and he did it so accurately but that that, that was the only real fictional portion apart from the entire fact that the whole thing was fictional but you know what i mean like in <laughs> from a science perspective yeah. those are the only two things that he had to invent and i i actually really think that's a cool way of doing science fiction if this is the deviation from our regular physics or our regular world, what would happen around a particular idea? And that's that's what he did. Um, and to the point around that this was made for a movie and that and that it was and it's very easy to kind of comprehend what's going on. Um, you know, you're absolutely right. That spoon feeding of the storyline is 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 refreshing because we've actually been reading some pretty complex stuff over the last little while, mm -hmm. and uh, and this was really nice to to have 
that hard sci-fi, but also have it in a way that it was just right there, well-written, very uh, accessible characters, that very human characters, even Rocky. Rocky is, you know, way more human than a lot of the characters that we read in other, in other, from other authors. Um, and that timeline thing of, of evolving the story through strategically timed rememberings of his past, uh, you know, a little convenient, right? But, uh, but, also, what an awesome way to divulge what happened in the past to the reader and to the protagonist. So it's not as though the protagonist knew. You're learning along with the protagonist uh, with grace. So I, I actually thought that was a really well thought through approach to divulging the story. For sure. Mm -hmm. And I'm surprised he pulled everything off at the end. It got to a point uh, getting towards the end of the book where a lot seemed to uh, have to come together somehow pretty quickly and uh, he did it. it i remember getting to that last page and being like this is this is it here we go and he really kind of leaves it to the last couple of pages there yeah so uh quite impressive yeah i love a book that pulls it all off at the end um and inspires so much more story right this is the beautiful thing it's oh, the yeah perfectly amazing self-contained book but you could write another 12 books out of this too right like it, it certainly by the last page it suggests so many other stories you'd be interested in hearing uh, i want to know about what happened on earth i want to know what happened over there i want to know what happened 40 years or 100 years later like it, it's all really beautifully inspired mm -hmm. uh, yeah it's kind of nice too that uh, even though they had, uh, you know, the, the alien species had xenonite and had some other advances, that humans made me feel kind of nice that humans were a little more advanced in some ways. You know, we knew about kind of uh, general relativity and time dilation as you, uh, as you accelerate to the speed of light and radiation, right? They, um, it was, it was just, it's kind of nice. It's very, it's often that the humans are the, are the ones who are lagging. And in right. this case, we weren't. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So did you guys notice any hidden Beatles references in the book? I saw non-hidden ones. Non yeah, ones, I thought the, yeah, I thought the Beatles was fairly obvious, wasn't it? Like, Well, yeah. Well, you're staying above and beyond that, presumably. Yeah, there was a couple. What uh, was it? Well, the one main one I do remember was early in the book, um, uh, Grace is describing one of his students, and her name is Abby. And he does quite uh, literally say... Abbey Road horses. Oh. So he says yeah. Abbey Road in the oh, book right, without right. referring to, or actually, obviously, different spelling of the word road. But he describes her and how she rode horses. So he literally says uh, Abbey Road horses. And then one, one other neat one, because the book itself, we should add, uh, was is dedicated. Andy dedicated this book to the Four Beatles. So that's a, this, oh, nice. that's the dedication at the beginning. And, and uh, of course, you've got the shuttles that are named after the four Beatles. And um, they were, so we do know that the Beatles were raised Catholic. And uh, Paul wrote about, um, uh, he refers to Catholicism in a few of his songs, uh, the most popular being Let It Be, Mother Mary. Um, so you've got Hail Mary. And who's inside of the Hail Mary? Grace, Hail Mary, Mary. Grace. full of grace. So he's wow. got some neat little symbolisms uh, that I that the I kept on trying to look for more because I thought as soon as I found uh, discovered those two, I started looking and couldn't find many more. Or maybe I just don't remember them. But uh, 
I love little hidden things in there. So I think he he crafted some neat uh, little wow. Easter eggs, if that's what you would call them in well, the story. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you're saying Hail Mary, full of grace. Yeah. The Lord is with thee. I wonder how far deeper into the prayer it goes, right? If, if you it, were to track the rest of the story. It's possible, um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The only way to know is to get him on our show and ask him. That's All right. right. We'll get yeah. him. Uh, you know what I loved is the the invented physics, right? So the crucial bit of physics that this relied on is super cross-sectionality. Okay, so that was the crux of the thing that made astrophage able to harvest energy, basically, somehow and hold it. Well, he didn't even explain how, maybe he did, how it held it. That was an even more complicated problem. But, but super cross-sectionality, right? So the thing that made astrophage able to uh, shoot photons of a certain wavelength out of its butt as a propulsion system <laughs> and to get it around space uh, and get spaceships to get around space, right? Is it, it, it able, it was able to catch neutrinos and you can't get neutrinos to interact with anything. Right. Uh, so, so if you could, this was the totally fictional thing that he throws out there. If you could increase the cross section. So this is a particle physics term. The amount that something interacts with somebody else is considered in terms of like an effective surface area for, you know, when they come across each other, they have a certain surface area and that controls the probability that they interact with each other. Well, neutrinos don't interact with anything. So they have no surface area. So he invented this notion that somehow biology could evolve this ability to be super cross-sectional, increase its ability to harvest certain kinds of particles, in this case, neutrinos, which are very high energy. And if you catch two of a certain neutrino and make them bounce into each other, it would turn into a photon. Uh, and that photon is, is sort of the crux of this whole story, um, technically, uh, scientifically. Um, but it is an impossible event. I mean, if you could catch one neutrino, I think, I think he postulates basically having two neutrinos react against each other to create this high-energy photon. And that's totally impossible. But hey, it's like the improbability drive in uh, Douglas Adams, right? Like you would need something like that uh, to, to make this work. Uh, and, and I think that's great. It's, it's a really imaginative kind of science to base a great story around. I mean, there were, there were other leaps too, right? Like, I, I mean, I have to, like, there were so, it was the science, the rest of the science around it that I think led credibility to the story. The fact that the world would get behind this project and that they could, you know, leap, you know, take the technical leaps forward that they, that, that they had to. And, and the story back on earth was, was, was a little tough to swallow at times, but but it's sort of backstopped by this really palatable uh, uh, science uh, that made it kind of like helped me suspend my disbelief and go, yeah, okay, that happened. And then they get there and it's sort of, so, but the fact that it gets as deep as you say, you know, into it, I mean, like there's, it's, it's, uh, it feels like you can, you can, you can feel the research behind it, you know, like it, it, when you, when you read something like this, uh, you can you you can sense and get really get a sense of the work that goes in behind it, and it, yeah. that just lends even more credibility to it. Really, yeah. it makes it makes it so much easier to to take in. Well, and I kind of love that, like what I described there was the hardest part of, by far of the whole thing. All the rest of it, I think, was much more digestible. It wasn't like high energy physics or anything. Um, he really walks you through this like extended a sequence of experiments that one would undertake to learn the things one might need to know in a situation like this. And, and, you know, it, it, it's great. I mean, for me, it was, uh, 
it was really revealing, right? And, and scientifically exciting, right? The whole process of revelation uh, of what they do to, to solve the problems they need to solve. One of the things that really attracts me to science fiction is uh, that the characters are smart. Um, I like smart characters. I like characters that are rational. And uh, and one thing that Andy Weir did in The Martian and this one is that there were really no antagonists. There were no bad guys. And uh, everybody's rooting for Grace. Everybody wants him to win. Uh, and it was the same thing with whatever the character's name was in The Martian. It, so it was just nothing but characters being pragmatic and trying to science the hell out of every situation um and for somebody like me that is super appealing so i, I found it I, I found that that this is this kind of hooks straight into the vein of of whatever that desire is in me for reading so i really i really like that Okay, so we've sort of we've we've batted around uh, this author for a little bit, and this book in particular. So, um, after hearing all of you talk about John Scalzi as much as you have been, uh, it was pretty easy. I just want to pick a, a group favorite here by the sounds of it. So, we are going to read Old Man's War. Nice. And wow, this is. Um, this was published in uh, 2005. This is John Scalzi's debut novel, and it was nominated for uh, Hugo for Best Novel in 2006. Um, and it's the first in a trilogy, and it's uh, military sci-fi, which I'm a bit of a sucker for, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, according to Wikipedia, this was actually optioned, for, optioned by uh, Paramount pictures in 2011 so i don't know Ooh. sitting in the um sitting somewhere in the uh in the in the development uh dungeon at paramount but uh mm -hmm. yeah so that's uh, that's what we're doing this this month sweet awesome. that's great i've got the first three of those sitting on my shelf looking at me waiting I, for me so i'm glad same to i bought this book a, a while ago and it's been sitting in my amazon account i don't know why i haven't read it but i will now do so that's great yeah we haven't done enough military sci-fi it's true um I think it's time we started. Uh, yeah, it's, it'll be nice to have a bit of a page turner. Um, how many books are in that series now? Yeah. He 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 keeps getting. No I think the old, the more recent books in that series uh, have been increasingly nominated for various awards. I think there might be um, five. I could be wrong though. I've I've seen five that look like they're the same artwork, so I'm only assuming that they're part of the same uh, world. <laughs> Yeah, it looks like if if they're not direct, um, uh, you know, sequels, they're at least sort of in that same world. So I've got Old Man's War, The Ghost Brigades, uh, The Last Colony, Zoe's Tale, The Human Division, and The End of All Things. So yeah. is the next, yeah. There you go. So, man. Yeah. So for for uh, for our uh, our trivia segment uh, this week this month, um, I uh, I decided to dip into um, the Hail Mary project. And if you remember earlier on in the book, Rylan Grace does a lightning round with his students, and so I have taken all the questions from that lightning round, and I will be flipping you with them for uh, for trivia this week. <laughs> uh, nice. All right. So it's it, these are real s 
science teachery questions for sure. And it starts off easy and then it gets a little, gets a little harder. So uh, we'll see what you guys are made of. You guys ready? Ready. Yep. All right. So first question, what is the actual name of the North Star? Jeff. Polaris. 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 Yes. Polaris. All right. So that, Marty was first on that one. So Marty in the book, everyone gets a beanbag. I can't do that for you. And I'm not sure you want one, but uh, you win the um, imaginary beanbag. Uh, second question. There, what are three basic kinds of rocks? Sedimentary. Metamorphic and sedimentary. That's two. Volcanic? Nope. Not, no. Wait, which two are? Uh, we've got so far of the three, we've got sedimentary and metamorphic. Okay. And we've got oh, one more. Igneous. Anyone? Igneous. Yes. Igneous. That's correct. I feel like you've got more on the line here, uh, Marty, as our <laughs> staff scientist. <laughs> defend my credibility okay uh third question uh what wave do you feel first during an earthquake Hmm. p wave yes that's absolutely correct and i presume we're not talking about like urine or anything like that this is something different (laughs) no no not 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 p no Okay. Well, maybe it is. S, right. uh, yeah. uh, I, I actually only just remembered that wrote from having read the book. I don't remember what it actually means. Uh, I assume there are like different directions of, of earthquakes, like up and down versus side to side or something, and that's one of them. You're asking the wrong guy, Marty. I just pulled <laughs> these out of a book. Hey, man. All right, all right. <laughs> I think it has to do with urine. Yeah, that's, that, I feel like you might be right. This could be a science inside joke. Um, what is the speed of light? It is the maximum speed that light can go. No, wait, what did you say there, Marty? Three times 10 to the eight meters per second. That, is that right? Three, three times 10 to C is what I have from the book. So I, I won't dispute C. that you're, yeah. And that's like just over 200,000 kilometers like per second? Three times 10 to the 8 is 300 million meters per second. So it's 300,000 kilometers per second. I think that's about right. Yeah. Maybe it was. I think you're right, Marty. Weird it sounded really good, Marty. So we're going to give you the beanbag for that one as well. All right, good. Well, I can't get that one wrong. <laughs> I, I'm the physicist in the crowd. Speed of light is like my currency in life. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, you, you're four for four. Um, in terms of beanbags, just so just for just for the record, I would have gotten none of these. So you know, I don't I don't even know that I would have gotten the Polaris one. So yeah, to me that's a bakery downtown. Um, <laughs> so, um, what is the nearest star to Earth? Vega, Proxima Centauri, oh, or Alpha Centauri. Actually, Alpha Centauri is the second closest. Right. And it's not Proxima Centauri instead? No, it's the sun. Or Alpha C- ah! oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Everyone got it wrong in the book, too. So someone goes, 
this, you know, Alpha Centauri. And guys, goes like, did nope, we even this, read this oh, book or yeah. what? Uh, come on. <laughs> way at the beginning. All right. And finally, what is the radius of Earth? I knew okay. I know. 7,000 miles? 7,000 miles? 20,000 kilometers? kilometers 25,000 kilometers? No, uh, no, no, but no, but but actually, you're almost there. It was uh, it. It is six thousand three hundred seventy-one kilometers. Oh, I was going to uh, say six thousand kilometers. And and this is the part, and the it, it, the only reason this one sort of stuck out for me was in the book. Um, one of the students named Trang, because he goes, "Who knows the quite the radius of the Earth?" And the student Trang goes, start, raises his hand, and and some other student yells out, "Trang." And he goes, that's not that. And he goes, well, Trang was going to answer. So <laughs> anyways, that is uh, trivia for, nice. uh, for this episode. Good ones. Old Man's War by John Scalzi kind of feels like a classic, even though it's not even 20 years old. It's just uh, a great book. I highly recommend you read it along with us if you haven't yet. All right, episode 12 comes out very soon, and we're talking with Carl Schrader, the hard Canadian sci-fi writer. His stuff is great. Join us for that conversation. Thanks, everyone.